Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 16, Nehemiah chapters 10 and 11. We'll continue in Nehemiah chapter 10 today and we'll move on into chapter 11. Lots of connecting more dots today, so let's get right at it. Chapter 10 records a historic ceremony in Jerusalem whereby the reformed and the restored Jewish people want to memorialize their turn back to the Lord. Now it's most instructional that the stated basis of this reform was to reestablish the word of God as their moral standard and as the manual for living a redeemed life as a chosen people. It was the commandments of the Torah that would recenter their lives. However, they no longer lived in a sovereign Jewish nation like their ancestors had. They were members of a Persian empire residing in a small Persian province called Yehud. Thus, while they indeed had authorization from the king of Persia to live their religious lives devoted to the God of Israel and to observe his ways and his appointed times, there were limitations. Nothing they could nothing they did could override or replace or conflict with Persian law. Essentially the enlightened Persian government was content to let the many races and peoples that formed their vast empire to practice worship to their own gods as long as it didn't involve rebellion or subversion or politics. One could reasonably say that essentially the Persian government was operated on a secular government philosophy as the western world of Europe, now the USA, prides itself on. Now I want to reiterate that what we read here in this chapter was meant to apply only to the Jews residing in Yehud, Judah. They represented no more, probably fewer, than 5% of all living Jews. The remainder choosing to live scattered about other cities in the Persian Empire. So while in a sense I'm sure that these Jews who vowed to obey and to return to God hoped that their repentance and submission before Him would have a profound effect both in heaven and on behalf of the few million Jews who had never known Judah as their home seemed to have no interest in relocating there no one can make a binding vow to God on someone else's behalf. Now what we have in chapter 10 then is a statement of faith. It expresses the terms upon which these Jews of Judah agree to go forward in practicing their Hebrew faith. And it outlines seven specific subjects or articles of faith that they would pay special attention to rigorously defend and to obey. 
These subjects begin in chapter 10, verse 30. And they are, first, obedience to God's Torah is the source of law and truth. Second, marriage. Third, Shabbat. Fourth, Shemitah, the uh, sabbatical year. Fifth, supporting the temple and the priesthood. Sixth, providing for the altar. And seventh, firstlings. We covered the first four of these subjects in our last lesson. We're not going to review them today. So let's begin with the fifth subject, or in modern Christian terminology, their fifth article of faith, supporting the temple and the priesthood. Now we're going to begin by rereading Nehemiah chapter 10, but starting at verse 29. So if you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're on page 1145. This is Nehemiah chapter 10. We'll start reading in verse 29. The rest of the people, the Kohanim, the priests, the Levaim, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the Torah of God, along with their wives and sons and daughters, everyone capable of knowing and understanding, joined their kinsmen and their leaders in swearing an oath, accompanied by a curse in case of noncompliance, as follows. We will live by God's Torah given by Moshe, the servant of God, and will perform and obey all the mitzvot, rulings and laws of Adonai our God. We will not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land or take their daughters as wives for our sons. If the peoples of the lands bring merchandise or food to sell on Shabbat, we will not buy from them on Shabbat or on a holy day. We will forego planting and harvesting our fields during the seventh year and collecting debts then. We will impose on ourselves a yearly tax of one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering, for the offerings on Shabbat, on Rosh Hodesh, at the designated times and at other holy times, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, for all the work connected with the house of our God. We, the Kohanim, the Levaim, and the people will cast lots in connection with the wood offering so that it will be brought to the house of our God according to our father's clans at specified times year by year and then be burned on the altar of Adonai our God as prescribed in the Torah. Every year we will bring the first fruits of our land and the first fruits of all fruit from every kind of tree to the house of Adonai. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and of our livestock as prescribed in the Torah and the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God to the Kohanim ministering in the house of our God. We will bring the first of our dough our contributions, the first of every kind of tree, wine and olive oil, to the priests in the storerooms of the house of our God, along with the tents from our land for the Levites, since they, the Levites, take the tents in all the cities where we farm. The Kohen, the priest, the descendant of Aaron, is to be with the Levites when the Levites take tents. The Levites will bring the tenth of the tenth, 
to the house of our God to the storerooms for supplies. For the people of Israel and the descendants of Levi are to bring the contribution of grain, wine, and olive oil to the rooms where the equipment for the sanctuary, the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers are. We will not abandon the house of our God. The subject starting at verse 33 is supporting the temple and the priesthood. And here the people have agreed to impose upon themselves a mandatory yearly contribution of one-third of a shekel. That is, the law is they must give this amount. It's a tax. The complete Jewish Bible rightly speaks of this amount as one-third of a shekel of silver. See, we must always remember that in the Bible era, a shekel was not a unit of money. It was a unit of weight, like an ounce or a gram. So a shekel of copper was, of course, worth less than a shekel of silver, and a shekel of silver was less valuable than a shekel of gold. But let's be clear. (laughs) One-third of a shekel of silver wasn't very much money. Some scholars have suggested that this money was needed because perhaps the Persian government that had promised to support the temple had reneged or or lessened their support. That's not impossible, but there's no suggestion of such a thing to be found. Besides, the rather small yearly amount that's being pledged would only add up to a modest sum. And it's unlikely that it could have replaced all the support that was being given by the Persian government. Well, the use of the money was specifically to buy the things needed for communal sacrifices. That is, this had nothing to do with the personal tithes and offerings and sacrificial animals that each person was required to bring for individual atonement and first fruits or the price of redemption for the firstborn. So we see the collection is to go for things like showbread, the grain offering, the mincha that accompanied each daily burnt offering, the Ola, the cost of the daily Ola, as well as the special sacrifices offered by the priesthood on behalf of all Israel on Shabbat, on Rosh Hodesh, that is each new moon, new month, and for all the biblical festivals. It would also be used for the national sin offering on Yom Kippur, and no doubt to buy things like the red heifer. And according to the final words of this verse, it also included all the work connected with the house of God. This can't mean everything that goes on, nor can it mean the support of the priests and the Levites, because the amount would just be too small. But rather, this would seem to mean just miscellaneous expenditures that came up from time to time. Now, sort of hidden in this passage is an important feature that we can all relate to. The Persian Empire had evolved into a monetary-based economy. That is, while bartering and trading goods and services, of course, continued, there was now a a national, meaning empire-wide, system of money. Coins, there was no such thing as paper money, became more standardized in weights and in values, and thus they were more acceptable they were more acceptable as currency regardless in which province the transaction may have occurred thus for example a coin minted in Judah 
had a legal and understood value that converted to coinage minted in the Persian capital of Shushan. Today we would call this a convertible currency. Now as concerns the Jews of Judah, this means for them that instead of having to bring produce or animals to the temple and to the priesthood, they could remit its equivalent in money, in coins. Then the priesthood would take the money and purchase whatever the giver was otherwise obligated to provide. Now, what they have decided, however, doesn't necessarily comply with the letter of the law, but it does comply with the spirit of the law. For instance, there is no Torah commandment to give money, coinage, to the temple to support it. However, the stated aim of some Torah laws was to properly support God's temple and his servants, the priests and the Levites. So the leaders of Judah decided that if each person gave one-third of a shekel of silver annually to the temple, that it would be properly supported. And so here's an appropriate example of a righteous attempt to adapt more modern circumstances to the ancient Torah law when cultures and technologies and occupations and, and even the way goods and services were acquired operated very differently. And it takes into account the Jews are now subjects of a secular foreign government in a multicultural world far advanced in every way from the days of Mount Sinai. This is what believers today ought to be doing. But it is also why it's not so straightforward to do it. It takes much wisdom. At times there is no single correct answer. Some of the Torah laws are easier than others to adapt in spirit to 21st century circumstances. Some can be done quite literally. And of course, there are some that are very difficult to bring across. Is there are few and sometimes no cultural similarities to the conditions when the law was first given. Now, when it comes to the temple-based ritual law, because there is no temple, there is no priesthood, there is no way to do them literally, although some of it can be done in spirit, to a point. Now the sixth subject, or the sixth article of faith, regards supporting the altar. And this is expressed in bringing fuel to burn up the sacrifices that are laid upon the altar. Since the fuel of that era was wood, then the issue was bringing in wood. Now this seems so simple and straightforward. Why is this rather mundane matter specifically highlighted here? It is because wood was not abundant. Thus it was relatively expensive. It was hard to gather and hard to prepare. Wood chopper as a temple occupation was also seen as among the lowliest tasks nobody wanted the job every culture including today has needed occupations that for one reason or another have become deemed as beneath dignity in the USA we import labor from 
labor of, of, of the hundreds of thousands of field hands from Mexico because it's a job that few native-born Americans will do. It is seen in American culture as beneath their dignity. Yet, it's just good, honest labor. And without it, our food supply would never get to market. Thus, while among the most menial, least desirable, low-level tasks that a person could have in that era, gathering and chopping wood was it. But it was essential for the operation of the altar. Now, apparently, gathering wood had become a serious problem. And so together, the priests and the Levites and the lay people agreed to share the load. And they would do it not by assigning the tasks themselves and and risk accusations of favoritism or simply not being very popular, but by casting lots. There would be a kind of order set up according to clans and extended families whose turn it would be in rotation to supply that wood. The casting of lots proves that this was a thorny issue, something no one was keen to be involved in. The Bible sets up casting lots, not as gambling, not as luck, not as superstition, but rather as a means of ascertaining God's will. Thus, to their way of thinking, by means of the lots, the Lord would reveal His will and then divinely assign those who were obligated and in what rotating order to supply wood for the altar. Now, I wonder how many people in a modern synagogue or church congregation would allow the casting of lots to determine who participates and in what way to accomplish the tasks that are needed, but that are in many ways rather thankless. But i got to tell you, I've often wondered if this might not be the best and most biblically sound way to do it. We won't put that to a vote. (laughs) The seventh subject, or article of faith, begins in verse 36, and it takes us to the end of the chapter. Regulations regarding first fruits are found in Exodus 23:19 and in Deuteronomy 26 verses 1 through 11. And I want to t- want us to take a close look at those passages. Exodus 23:19 says this, you are to bring the best first fruits of your land into the house of Adonai your God. Then beginning in Deuteronomy 26:1. When you have come to the land Adonai your God is giving you as your inheritance, taken possession of it and settled there, you are to take the first fruits of all the crops uh, crops that the ground yields, which you will harvest from your land that Adonai your God is giving you. Put them in a basket. Go to the place where Adonai your God will choose to have his name live. You will approach the Kohen, the priest, holding office at that time. Say to him, Today I declare to Adonai your God that I have come to the land Adonai swore to our ancestors and that he would give us. The Kohen will take the basket from your hand, put it down in front of the altar of Adonai your God. And then in the presence of Adonai your God you are to say, My ancestor was a nomad from Aram. 
He went down into Egypt, few in number, and stayed. There he became great, a strong, populous nation. But the Egyptians treated us badly. They oppressed us and imposed harsh slavery on us. So we cried out to Adonai, the God of our ancestors, and Adonai heard us and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. And Adonai brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. Now he's brought us to this place given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Therefore, as you see, I have now brought the first fruits of the land, which you, Adonai, have given to me. You are then to put the basket down before Adonai your God, prostrate yourself before Adonai your God, and take joy in all the good that Adonai your God has given to you, your household, the the, uh, Levite, and the foreigner living with you. Now, With that, it is also explicit in the Torah that for the most part, all firstlings of animals and crops are for the purpose of supporting the priesthood. In Numbers 18.11-15 we read this. Also yours, sons of Aaron, is the contribution the people of Israel give in the form of wave offerings. I have given these to you, your sons and your daughters, with you. This is a perpetual law. Everyone in your family who is clean may eat it. All the best of the olive oil, wine, and grain, the first portion of what they give to Adonai, I have given to you. The first produce to turn ripe of all that is in their land, which they bring to Adonai, is to be yours. Every clean person in your family may eat it. Everything in Israel which has been consecrated unconditionally is to be yours. Everything that comes first out of the womb of all living things which they offer to Adonai, whether human or animal, will be yours. So in a kind of dual purpose, the firstlings are connected with the appropriate support of the priesthood, as well as the required giving to God of the first and the best, which by definition is rightfully his anyway. Now, of course, the firstborn of human beings, always meaning males, aren't given to the priesthood except in a symbolic way. Rather, they are indeed offered up, given to God, but then in the same transaction they are redeemed and returned to their parents. Numbers 18, 15, and 16. However, the firstborn of a human you must redeem. And the firstborn of an unclean beast you are to redeem. The sum to be paid for redeeming anyone a month old or over is to be five shekels of silver as you value it using the sanctuary shekel. So the Torah law about firstlings is here being reaffirmed. But I want to be clear. No Torah law has to be reaffirmed occasionally in order for it to remain valid as time goes by and circumstances change. Humans don't get to decide which of God's commandments we obey and which ones we don't. Our religious authorities, Jew or Christian, have never been given divine authority to overturn, to change, to add, subtract from God's commandments. However, It's done regularly, without the blink of an eye, or a protest from the congregation. 
And in most parts of Christianity, it has gone so far as to simply discard all of God's commandments and laws in favor of instituting new regulations extrapolated from certain sayings of Paul. Now verses 38 through 40 essentially expound on what is being vowed in verse 36. However, whereas verse 36 was aimed at the lay people of Judah, verses 38 to 40 make it clear that the priests and the Levites also have their roles and they are to take only what part is rightfully theirs according to the law and not to misappropriate. And the last few words of chapter 10 rather well sum up the bottom line of the intent of the chapter. We will not abandon the house of our God. It's clear from these passages that the house of our God of course means the temple but it also includes all who do service for the temple from the high priest down to the lowliest gatekeeper. The temple without the priests and the Levites serves no purpose. And if the people don't obey the Lord and support the temple and all of its functions then they don't deserve to have the Lord in their midst and He shall leave them. Now I want to briefly summarize this chapter by saying that while on the one hand so much of Nehemiah is about establishing the critical importance of good and godly leadership and how to define it, what we just read in chapter 10 emphasizes the involvement of the entire community. No one's exempt. Not the poorest, not the richest. Not the most skilled, not the least skilled. Everyone is required to contribute. Showing up regularly or occasionally is not contributing. Letting others do all the needed tasks and providing the support for the temple is not acceptable to the Lord. The other matter is that a very broad statement of intent. We will live by God's Torah given by Moses, a servant of God, and perform and obey all the commandments, rulings, and laws of our Lord. This is followed up by six stipulations that offer some detail about what seemed especially important and relevant to them and their era and under their prevailing circumstances. What this shows us is that our warm feelings and our good intentions have little or no meaning if they're not backed up with concrete actions. And essentially, correcting things that we now see are wrong. Nowhere in the Bible, Old or New Testaments, will we ever find that a confession of faith that is not followed up with sincere change in behavior, commitment to obedience, and actual deeds has any value at all. What is so clearly stated to this effect in the Tanakh, the the Hebrew Bible, is also equally as clearly stated in the New Testament. James 2, 14-17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it? Is such a faith able to save him? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or without daily food. Someone says to him, Shalom, keep warm and eat hearty. Without giving him what he needs, what good does it do? So faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. Let's move on to chapter 11. Open your, Bibles to, open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11, page 1146 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Nehemiah chapter 11. The leaders of the people took up residence in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one-tenth of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths, with the other nine-tenths in the other cities. The people blessed all those who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. In the cities of Judah, everyone lived on his own property. The people of Israel, the Kohanim, the Levaim, the temple servants, and the descendants of Shlomo, Solomon's servants. But the leaders of the province lived in Jerusalem. Some of those living in Jerusalem were from people of Judah. Others were from people of Benjamin. Those from the people of Judah were Atiyah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Ashphatiah, and the son of Mahalael, from the descendants of Peretz. And Maaseah, the son of Baruch, the son of Kol Jose, the son of Hazayah, the son of Adiah, the son of Yoyorif, the son of Zechariah, who belonged to the family of Shelah. The total number of descendants of Peretz living in Yerushalayim was, was 468 courageous men. These are the people of Benjamin, Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Yoed, the son of Padiah, the son of Koloyah, the son of Maaseiah, the son of uh, Etiel, the son of Yeshayah, and after him, Gabai, Salai, 928 in all. Yoel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Yehuda, the son of Haznuah, was second in charge of the city. From the priests, Yediah, the son of Yoyariv, Yachin, Siriah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Sadok, the son of Mariot, the son of Ahutiv, the supervisor of the house of God, and their kinsmen who did the work for the house, in all 822. And Adiah, the son of Yerucham, the son of Palaiah, the son of Am. Uh, Amtsi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Malkiah. With his kinsmen, heads of father's clans, 242. And Amashsai, the son of Azarel, the son of Achzai, the son of Mesh- Meshilamot, the son of Imer. And with his kinsmen, courageous men, 128. Their overseer was Zavdiel, the son of Hagodolim. Now from the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashuv, the son of uh, Azricham, the son of Hashafiah, the son of Buni, and Shabtai and Yozavad from the leaders of the Levites who were in charge of external affairs for the house of God, and Matanyah, the son of Mikah, the son of Zavdi, the son of Asaf, the leader who began the thanksgiving prayer. And Bakbuchya, the second among his kinsmen, and 
Avda, the son of Shamwa, the son of Galal, the son of Yeduton, and the Levites in the holy city, number 284. The gatekeepers, Aktuv, Talmon, and their kinsmen who kept watch in the gates, number 272. The rest of Israel, the rest of the priests, and the rest of the Levites were in all the cities of Judah, each on his own property. The temple servants lived in, it lived in the Ophel. Zikah and Gishpah were in charge of the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashaviah, the son of Matanya, the son of Mekah, from the descendants of Asaph, the singers. He was in charge of the work of the house of God. For they were subject to the king's orders, and there was a fixed schedule for the singers, assigning them to their daily duties. Ptachiah, the son of Meshe'ev Zavel, from the descendants of Zerach, the son of Yehuda, was the king's deputy in all affairs concerning the people. Now as for the villages and their surrounding fields, some of the people of Yehuda lived in Kiryat Arba and its villages, in Dibon and its villages, in Yakbazel and its villages, in Yeshua, in Moladah and Beit Pelet, in Hatzar Shual and its, its villages, and in Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, in Machunah and its villages, in Ein Ramon, in Torah, in Yarmut, in uh, Zanawach, in Adulam and their villages, in Lachish and its surrounding fields, and in Azakah and its villages. Thus they occupied the territory from Beersheba as far as the Hinnom Valley. Now the people of Benjamin lived from Geba onward in Mikmash and in Ayah, in Bethel and its villages, in Anatot, Nov, and Ananyah, Hatzor, Ramah, Gitayim, Hadid, Zeboim, Navayat, Lud, Ono, and Geharashim. Of the Levites, some divisions of Judah settled in Benjamin. Okay, gotta have a test on those names in five minutes. <laughs> Now there's no doubt that this chapter is closely related and it is connected to Nehemiah 7 verses 1 through 5. Let's go there for just a moment so that we can get some of the context for understanding what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 11. So Nehemiah 7, 1 through 5 says this. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set up its doors and the gatekeeper singers and the Levites had been appointed, I put my kinsman Hanani in charge of Yerushalayim along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. For he was a faithful man and he feared God more than most. And I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot and while the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors. And you put up the bars. Appoint watchmen from among those living in Jerusalem, assigning each one of his time to guard. Have each one serving near his own house. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. The houses hadn't been rebuilt. My God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the leaders, and the people so that they could be registered according to their genealogies. So, like anyone trying to tell a complex story, 
that has a number of facets and related parts. Sometimes you kind of set the stage, then you move on and add what comes next because it gives a better context. You take a detour too to give a little more information and then you back up. So now we have sufficient data that we can see why things eventually played out the way they did. Now we see this style in TV shows and in movies and especially in novels. The long-running TV show Seinfeld used this style of storytelling in nearly every episode. Thus what was set up for us at the beginning of chapter 7 is now being carried out in chapter 11. And the issue is this. Jerusalem contains too few people. Pretty simple issue. So some of this is due to it only recently gaining a defensive wall. And also partly because there were few standing homes in the city for people to live in. An economy had begun to develop, but of course more people equal more buyers, therefore more sellers, therefore so mer- uh, more merchants and traders, and they're attracted to it. But there's a bigger issue at play here. The defense of the city. What I think this is mostly about is getting sufficient people to move to Jerusalem to be able to better defend it. After all, they had no standing Jewish army and no way would a wise Persian king knowingly allow a provincial governor to construct his own military force beholden to that governor. Now the Jewish leaders already lived in Jerusalem. Why? Because <laughs> Nehemiah lived there. And he was the Persian Tirshatah, the governor. Leaders want and need to be near the power center. That meant living where the governor lived. The ordinary citizens were tasked with coming up with a way to get more Jewish people to move into Jerusalem, and they made the decision to do this by casting lots. One in ten families, then, was to move to the city according to the decision of the lots. Now, as we discussed earlier, it was believed that casting lots revealed God's will. So, whoever was chosen was actually chosen by God. And by putting a religious light on the issue, it also relieved the leadership of doing anything that would otherwise be perceived as forcing people to move in from other villages or the countryside. And by requiring exactly, you'll notice, one-tenth, one-tenth, ten percent, of the people to relocate, this was kind of like a tithe. That is, people were giving themselves over to God's will as an offering. So even the proportion that would go, the one-tenth, this, this, even that carried a spiritual overtone to it. At the same time, by leaving the 90% of the people undisrupted, to continue working their fields and their orchards and working their trades, then the effect upon the food supply and the practical needs for everyday living weren't greatly hampered. Those 10% who were chosen by lots were praised by the 90% for doing the will of God and not rebelling against the results. That said, I don't think we should think that uh, 
The 10% were so high-minded that they they were necessarily thrilled about this sudden upheaval in their lives. Hardship would have been involved in most cases. Well, verse 4 opens the door to discuss a very sensitive subject. We're pretty good at that here, aren't we? Especially in our modern time for modern-day Jews. Begins a series of passages that explains that the Jewish people of Judah consisted of two tribal heritages, Benjamin and Judah. So we read here. Now, this isn't controversial in itself. The issue lies in that two tribes and two tribes only are mentioned here, with the self-evident sense being that these two tribes essentially represent all the Jews, at least those who migrated back to Judah. But modern Judaism has for centuries declared that the Jews who returned home to Judah were all Israel and represented the remnants of all 12 tribes. That is, this return from exile was the return of both those Jews from Babylon, from the Babylonian exile and of the Israelites of the ten northern tribes from the much earlier Assyrian exile. It is the tradition in modern Judaism to consider themselves all that remains of Israel. So in their minds, all twelve tribes returned to Judah during the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. Now, not only does this defy historical reality, it also goes expressly against Ezekiel's prophecy of Ezekiel 37. That someday, the two tribal groups of Judah and of Ephraim, the ten lost tribes, would return to the promised land. And they would be ruled under a Davidic king forever. They essentially say, oh, well, this has already happened. But as the Bible and history shows us, not since King Zedekiah in 596 B.C., right up until today, has Israel had a Jewish king, let alone one from the line of the king of David. And that is because, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar in 596, B.C. Israel has never again until 1948 been a sovereign Jewish nation. Prior to World War II, Israel had always been under the control of a foreign power since the Babylonian exile. So the majority of modern Israelis and diaspora Jews are missing the remarkable fulfillment of prophecy of the return of the ten lost tribes is happening right now. A number of top Jewish scholars and top rabbis have tried in vain to change this misguided tradition and explain to Jews the significance of the return of the ten lost tribes. It's only recently begun, but it's been met with mostly deaf ears. Let's close today by reading some 
of Ezekiel 37 that not only proves my point that it was only Judah and Benjamin who formed the Jews who returned to Babylon, but also we are today eyewitnesses to the fulfillment of what can only be an end times Bible prophecy. So turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. And if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is going to be on page 691. 691. Ezekiel chapter 37. Starting at verse 15, we'll read to the end. The word of Adonai came to me. You, human being, take one stick and write on it for Judah and those joined with him among the people of Israel. Now take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel who are joined with him. Now finally, bring them together into a single stick so that they become one in your hand. And when your people ask you what all of this means, that's kind of a key phrase, isn't it? Tell them that Adonai Elohim says this, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, Together with, the sticks, uh, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him and put them together with the stick of Judah and make them a single stick so they become one in my hand. The sticks on which you write are to be in your hand as they watch. Then say to them that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they've gone and gather them from every side and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations. They will never again be divided into two kingdoms. They will never again defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things, or any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the places where they've been living and sinning. I'll cleanse them so that they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and all of them will have one shepherd. They will live by my rulings and keep and observe my regulations. They will live in the land I gave to Jacob, my servant, where your ancestors lived. They will live there. They, their children, their grandchildren forever. And David, my servant, will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give to them, increase their numbers. I will set my sanctuary among them forever. My home will be with them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. The nations will know that I'm Adonai, who sets Israel apart as holy when my sanctuary is with them forever. That's right. Hallelujah. We'll continue with this chapter next week.